0: Passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church, and now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. So good to be able to open God's Word with you this morning. Uh, My name is Jordan. I'm one of the pastors here at Crosswinds. Um, If you have a Bible, I I hope you do, um, go ahead and open up a uh, so 1 Samuel chapter 1. We're going to be in 1 Samuel 1, verses 1 through 20 this morning. We're going to look at um, the story of, of Hannah. Last week we began our sermon series on uh, 1 Samuel by really just looking at um, kind of the, the overarching theme of the book and why we have named this series Looking for the True King. And that is because this book is all about our need. For the Lord's promised king. It's, uh, it's about our need for, for Jesus himself. And, and as, we, as we're going to work our way through First Samuel, we'll, we'll see that this need for a promised king is, is partially fulfilled in David, uh, it partially fulfilled in, in David's descendants, but it's not until we get to the person of Jesus that we will see our need at last fully and finally met because Jesus is the Lord's promised king. Now, if, uh, if this book is about the Lord's promised king, then it, it would make sense that it would open up by introducing us to the king, or at least to the king's family, to, to David's family, or, or if not David's family, maybe Saul's family. And so it might come as a bit of a surprise to us if we're not familiar with the book of, of 1 Samuel that it doesn't start with David's family, it doesn't start with Saul's family, but it said starts with Samuel's family. It starts with a man named Elkanah and his wife, Hannah. And there's a lot we can learn from this passage about prayer, about how to endure in the midst of suffering, about how to trust Jesus, uh, really about our our need for Jesus. Hannah is this amazing example to us, not just of, of how we should pray, in the midst of suffering and depression, but also, and I think maybe even more so, it's a, it's a passage that's about the sovereignty of God. It's about how God is in charge and, and how God uses mysterious ways to accomplish His purposes, His plans, even in the midst of our suffering and in the midst of our affliction. And so, with that in mind, we're going to go ahead and jump into First Samuel chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 1 through 20 this morning. This passage really, just three acts of, of Hannah's story. Um, before we jump into that, though, um, I, let's take a moment to pray. Um, this, is, this is a challenging passage, um, one that might hit uh, hard for, for some people um, because of the content of this passage. And so as we open God's word, um, let's ask for his blessing and for his spirit to be with us, um, to teach us, um, to encourage us, to comfort us, and to point us ultimately toward Jesus. Would you pray with me? Father, as, as we open your word this morning, um, we ask for your presence among your people. We, we thank you that you have sent us your Holy Spirit, and that Holy Spirit, you dwell within us, that you teach us, you convict us, you comfort us, and you, unite us um, to the person of Jesus Christ. And God, we ask certainly that you would um, be at work as we open your word this morning, that we would be drawn into a deeper trust in you. Um, even in the midst of mysterious and and hard and and painful affliction. And God, as we uh, approach your word this morning, we do so um, from different places. Some of us, we might see ourselves in Hannah. Whether it's in her circumstances, or maybe it's circumstances that we have experienced in the past, that as we look at at Hannah's story, it, it brings to mind painful times, God, some of us might deeply relate with Hannah's affliction even if the circumstances are different, that the challenge remains, the pain is there, and we know deep within our souls what it means to be deeply distressed, what it means to weep bitterly even as Hannah does in this passage. And so, God, we, we confess that you're a good, loving Compassionate God, and we ask that you would comfort your people. God, that you would meet us in our time of need. And God, through this text, we ask that you would transform us. Help each and every one of us to be people who readily and regularly run to you in prayer, no matter our burden, no matter our affliction. And above all, God, we ask that you would use this passage to stir within each and Every one of us a greater appreciation for Jesus, our great High priest, the one who has given us free and unhindered access to the throne of grace in our time of need. Thank you, Jesus. It's in your name that we pray these things. Amen. All right, well Hannah's story begins with this description of her affliction her affliction in verses 1 through 8. Let's go ahead and work our way through these verses, starting in verse 1. There was a certain man from Rameathim Zophim, of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jehoram, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuth, an Ephrathite. And he had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Penina. And Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. The text opens and introduces us to the family of Elkanah. Elkanah was a Levite who was living in the hill country of Ephraim in a, in a town called Ramathium Zophim. And I'm glad I only have to say that one more time. It's also known as Ramah in this passage, and that's what we're just going to say from here on out, because Ramah is a whole lot easier. Ramah was located about five miles north of Jerusalem, and the fact that we are introduced to uh, Elkanah here with this uh, lengthy genealogy and this description of his family hints that even though we don't really know much about him, he is a man of at least some status, and that's reinforced by what we see in verse 2. That he was wealthy enough to have two wives. One was Penina and the other was named Hannah. Now, polygamy was rare in the Old Testament, but it did occasionally happen. We have a couple examples of it in the Old Testament. And yet, the Old Testament makes it very clear that it's not something that it condones, it's not something that it commands, it's not a part of God's original plan for marriage. If we look at Genesis chapter 2, verse 20, 24. But, at the same time, the Bible does, in the Old Testament, give us some um, instructions on how polygamy should be handled, not as a way of condoning it, but to really curb the abuses of this practice in the ancient Near East. And one of the reasons why people would sometimes resort to polygamy was to ensure that they would be able to have offspring, and that seems to be the case for Elkanah in this passage. It's likely that Elkanah was married to Hannah first, but because she was unable to bear children, Elkanah took a second wife, Peninnah, here to ensure that his line would continue. And that's actually what we see as we consider this passage, as we look in verse 2, because while Hannah does not have children, Peninnah does have children. What might be surprising to us is that in spite of Elkanah's polygamy, he is otherwise portrayed as a relatively godly man. He's portrayed in this positive light here in 1 Samuel chapter 1. Unlike most of Israel in that day, he is a man who is a genuine worshiper of the Lord. Last week, we looked a little bit at the spiritual state of Israel at the time of the beginning of 1 Samuel. And we looked at the end of the book of Judges, and Judges ends with this terrible description of all of the things that Israel is doing. It's talking about idol worship, and child sacrifice, and and gang rape, and genocide. And then the book of Judges ends by reminding us of why all these things are happening. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Those who truly worship the Lord, they're they're few and far between. And so when we get to this description of Elkanah in verses 3, 4, and 5, he shines brightly in the midst of the darkness of the nation of Israel in that day. Verse 3, now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Penina, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters, but to Hannah he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. So each and every year, Elkanah would bring his family on this journey to Shiloh, And during the time of the Judges, this is where the the tabernacle was located. The tabernacle, also known as the Tent of Meeting, it's this massive tent where the Ark of the Covenant was located. It was this place where it was said that God dwelt on earth. It was the place where if you wanted to worship God, this is where you would come. It was the center of worship for the people of Israel. You wouldn't offer sacrifices anywhere else. There were no priests serving in other locations. This is where you came to truly worship God. If you really wanted to worship God, you would do it at Shiloh. And that's exactly what Elkanah and his family would do. They would, they would journey from Ramah all the way to Shiloh, about a 15-mile journey from the south to the north, and he brings his family with him. This would take about two, day, two days with his, all of his children traveling with him. And when he would get to Shiloh, he would offer a sacrifice and, and some of the sacrifices that you offer in the Old Testament, like peace offerings, they, you, would, you would make a sacrifice and, and part of it would be consumed on the altar. Part of it would actually go to the family of the priests and then part of it would be returned to you so you would enjoy it as a family. And as he receives this offering or these portions back, he would pass that portion or those portions out to the rest of his family. He gives some to Penina, gives some to Penina's children, and he gives some to Hannah as well. In fact, it's because of his love for Hannah that he gives her a double portion despite her lack of children. And we see here the, the ugliness of polygamy begin to rear its ugly head and Penina lashes out at Hannah, picking up in verse 6. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her, because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year, as often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep and why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? The text tells us that these trips to Shiloh were some of the worst times of Hannah's life. The strife that existed between Hannah and Penina would be exacerbated on these trips, and it's it's not hard to, to see how or to see why. Just imagine these trips to Shiloh for the majority of the year Hannah and Penina wouldn't be they wouldn't have to be around each other they probably actually lived in separate dwellings if you were wealthy enough to have two wives in that day you also probably had two houses where their two your two wives would Live And so Hannah, uh, for the most part in Ramah, was able to avoid Penina and her children. They, they had their own separate locations. Hannah wouldn't have had to have been around her. It would have been the very minimum required, but all of that would change on these trips. As the entire family goes to Shiloh, all 15 miles through the hilly country of Ephraim, they would go together. And Hannah would be forced to be surrounded by Penina and see all of her children out walking through this journey. And all of them are going to Shiloh and all of them are expected to worship together. And when these sacrifices are offered and these portions are handed out, it was painfully obvious that she had no kids. Because portion after portion was given to to Penina and to her children. And even though Elkanah gives a double portion to Hannah, this is a billboard that's broadcasting, making it very clear that Hannah is afflicted, that she does not have children. Of course, you look at it from Penina's perspective, and, and no doubt she's incensed by Elkanah's special treatment of Hannah. And she has her own pain, her own anguish, her own affliction, her own hardship that she's dealing with. And yet, instead of bringing it to the Lord, as we're going to see Hannah does, she instead decides to just savage Hannah. To just rub it in her face. She wants, to, she wants to feel better about herself and she's going to do all she can to make herself feel better about herself by making Hannah feel terrible. And the text tells us that Panina would actually uh, provoke her grievously on these trips year after year. And you can just imagine the snide comments, the knowing glances All of these things that Penina would say and do to inflict as much damage as possible in Hannah's heart. It's no wonder that the text tells us that Hannah wept and would not eat. And that's why the underlying message of this passage is is so crucial for us to hear. Look again at the end of verse 5. And the end of verse 6, you see this repetition. Though the Lord had closed her womb. Verse 6, the Lord had closed her womb. You see, here at the, the beginning of Hannah's story, the Bible wants to make it very, very clear, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that Hannah's affliction comes from the very hand of God that her suffering is not due to chance. It's not due to meaninglessness of life. It's because God, in His mysterious and, and sometimes very painful providence, has done this. And what's more, this is, this is true of all affliction, no matter what it may be. In fact, that's the first message of this passage for us this morning that we, we have to latch onto: that the Lord is sovereign over your affliction. Whatever that affliction, whatever that pain, whatever that hardship, whatever that suffering may be, the Lord is sovereign over it. It's not outside of God's control that God reigns over that hardship and affliction. and It doesn't matter if it is cancer or childlessness or ruined finances or loneliness or depression or loss or a million other things that God in his mysterious providence, has closed Hannah's womb. And in the same way, the Lord is sovereign over your affliction as well. And you might wonder, how on earth is that good news? In my Bible, next to these two verses, I have written just one little note to remind myself in the margins. This is a great comfort that we are held captive, not held captive to the whims of fate and chance, but are instead held in the arms of a loving God. It may be hard news to hear that the Lord is sovereign over our affliction, but it is surely harder news to hear that he can't do anything to stop it. That he may be sovereign over all of these other areas, but he's not sovereign over the pain in my own life. A God who is not sovereign over, not reigning over, our hardship is powerless to stop it. In short, a God who is not sovereign over our affliction is not a God at all. And so while it may be hard news for us to hear that the Lord is sovereign and reigns over our affliction, it is also good news. It might, be, it might be painful, it might be perplexing, it might be hard for us to grasp, but when we acknowledge that God is sovereign over our hardship and affliction and pain and heartache, then it also means that we can run to Him. That if he's reigning over it, then he can actually do something about it. And that's exactly what Hannah does in this passage. As we look at the second act of Hannah's story, her prayer, picking up in verse 9. After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. And she was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will, be, will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. Hannah's prayer here is this beautiful prayer of, of faith and confidence in God. Even in the midst of of the fact that God is the one who has caused her this pain. In the midst of her affliction, she she pours out her heart to God. And I just want you to, to briefly consider five observations from Hannah's prayer in these verses. First, notice in verse 9 and in verse 10, she turns to God in her affliction. She she runs to God in her affliction Penina might cope with her pain by inducing pain on others and yet Hannah runs to the Lord who has closed her womb she doesn't grow bitter She doesn't see this as an excuse to to be angry with God. She doesn't conclude that any God who would do this to her is not a God worth following. Rather than abandoning her faith, she actually clings to it in the midst of her pain and hardship and heartache. And of all the things that, that Hannah could have done, she chooses the very best thing. She turns to God in her affliction. When she is so distraught that she can't even eat, she brings her anguish to the Lord. Notice again the words of verse 10, she was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. What a powerful description of the heart of Hannah in this moment. She turns to God And she brings all of her distress, all of her pain, all of her her bitter tears. And she doesn't hide them from God. She doesn't use them as a justification to be mad at God. But she just simply brings them to God in prayer. Notice another observation in verse 11. She knows who God is. She knows who God is. The opening of her prayer in verse 11, she calls God the Lord of Host. And this chapter, First Samuel chapter 1, is the first time that we see this title or this description or this name for God in the entire Bible. Hannah knows the one that she is calling out to, she's crying out to, she's crying out to the Lord or Yahweh. The unique name that God has given to his people Israel as a sign that he has a special relationship with them. And by beginning her prayer this way, Hannah is claiming that she has a unique relationship with God that, that no other nation can claim. She's, she's crying out to Yahweh. She's crying out to the one who has made himself known to the people of Israel and has made promises to them. Not only does she call him Yahweh, she also calls him the Lord of, of hosts. And this is a declaration of his, his sovereign rule, that the fact that he is in charge, he is ruling and reigning. This term hosts is oftentimes used to describe angelic armies of heaven. It's used to describe Israel's armies. It's, it's used to describe the stars and the planets in the sky. And so by referring to God as the Lord of hosts, she's expressing this trust and this confidence in that, that God is, is in charge, that God is, is reigning on his throne and nothing stands outside of his rule, nothing stands outside of his reign. Hannah knows exactly who God is and she knows that he is sovereign over the pain that she has experienced in her life and she knows it's not outside of his control and her circumstances push her to God rather than away from him. Notice she doesn't make up a God that's more palpable for her in her circumstances but she runs to and clings to the true God. Third, notice the Hannah also knows who she is. She also knows who she is. Three times in verse 11, she calls herself the Lord's servant. This is a, a, an expression of humility before the sovereign Lord of all creation, but it's also a stunning declaration of, of the relationship that she has with God. It's a statement of, of humility, but it's also a statement that, that she trusts that God cares about her. One commentator puts it this way, her, her faith assures her that the Lord of the universe is interested in her personal affairs. In calling herself servant, she is expressing her confidence that he is concerned with her pain and mental and spiritual anguish. She acknowledges that in spite of her humble state before the Lord of the cosmos, he actually cares about her. That God actually cares about You. And for Hannah, she believes that because God cares about her, he cares about her enough that he might actually do something about her situation. And so she prays. Next, notice Hannah's request is based on God's faithfulness. It's based on God's faithfulness. Let's go ahead and read the first half of verse 11 again. It says, and she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son. We'll stop there. Everything that Hannah asks God for in the first half of this prayer and vow is, is entirely rooted in the faithfulness of God. Remember that she starts by referring to God as the Lord of hosts. She uses this term Lord or Yahweh, this special name, uh, describing the special relationship that God has with the people of Israel. He gives that name to the people of Israel during the Exodus. And this name conveys the fact that God has made promises to the people of Israel. And that God is going to keep those promises to His people. And when Hannah uses this name, it's, it's not random. She's, she's theologically sharp. She knows exactly what she is doing. She's using the exact same name that God revealed to his people when he said that he would be their God and that when he would, he would bless them. And when Hannah uses it here, when she's coming to God and she's saying, God, you're the one who, who makes these promises to his people, and I'm asking you to be faithful to those promises. Notice also that Hannah describes her situation by calling it affliction. Again, another callback to the time of the Exodus. Exodus chapter 3, when God notices the pain and the suffering of His people while they're enslaved in Egypt, it's described as affliction. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their Sufferings. And Hannah, as she's pouring out her heart to God, recognizing that she has pain and suffering and heartache in her life, she uses the exact same term from Exodus to describe her affliction right when God says, I have seen and I know the pain that my people are experiencing. And Hannah says, God, I, I, I know you see. I know that you know the suffering that I am experiencing. Hannah again ties her, her pain into the faithfulness of God and says that, that just as God has intervened with the pain and suffering of his people hundreds of years earlier, she wants God to do the exact same thing right now. Her prayer is rooted in the faithfulness of God. Notice her request. The word that's used to describe the actual request of Hannah in verse 11. She, she wants God to remember her. God, would you remember me? Whenever this term is used in the Bible for God, it is not saying that God is forgetful, but is. God calling to mind the promises that he has made to his people. And God is going to act in accordance to the promises that he has made to his people. And we see this with Abraham. And we see this with Abraham's descendants. We see this with the people of Israel. Again, when God notices the pain and the suffering and intervenes on behalf of his people in the time of the Exodus, it all comes back to this word, remember. Exodus chapter 2, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham and with Isaac and with Jacob. When Hannah pours her heart out to God, she's asking that God would act in accordance with his personality and with his promises, that God would do what God does, that God would be who God says he is. And she looks at her circumstances and she knows that her circumstances are are different than what God has promised to his covenant people. And so she says, God, would you intervene in my life because of who you are and because of what you have promised to your people? But I think most importantly, the most important thing that we can notice from Hannah's prayer here, is that she submits it to the will of God. She submits her desire to the will of God. Take a look at the end of verse 11. Then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. It would be very easy for us as we are reading 1 Samuel Chapter 1, verse 11, to interpret Hannah's prayer here as this form of bargaining with or bartering with God. Like, God, if you do X for me, then I will do Y for you. But is, is that really what she's doing? Is she trying to make a bargain or a bartering with God? Put yourself in Hannah's situation. Her greatest desire is, is for a child and she is terribly grieved not only by the lack of not having a child but also by the fact that her husband has children with another woman. And if your greatest desire is to have a child why on, why on earth would you while you're asking God to intervene in your life to offer that child up? To say, God if you give me what I want then I'll go ahead and just, just hand him back off to you. If her only concern is for her own heart and heartache and and pain, even though that's very real, this doesn't make any sense. Hannah's not bartering with God. Bartering with God, bargaining with God, is just this this veiled form of, of selfishness that has our wants, our desires, our concerns at the core. And Hannah. Hannah's the opposite here. In the midst of Hannah's request to God is this, not, not selfishness, but, but selflessness, a, a, willing to, a willingness to give up her son. And honestly, that's probably more shocking than seeing her barter and bargain with God, that she would be willing to, to give up her son. What on earth is going on here The key to understanding Hannah's prayer is to understand the the last phrase in verse 11. If God gives her a son, she will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. What does that mean? It's almost certainly a shorthand way from Hannah saying that she will offer up her son to be a, a lifelong Nazarite. On your own, sometime today or tomorrow, just, just briefly read through Numbers chapter 6, verses 1 through 21. This is this chapter that describes this Israelite practice that, that's called the Nazarite vow. This is a vow that any Israelite could make for, for a short period of time. And it was a, the idea was to separate themselves or, or consecrate themselves to the service of God. The Lord, and, and actually, that's what the term Nazarite means. It comes from this Hebrew word that means to separate for or to consecrate for. And Nazarite vows were, were normally temporary, but at least three examples in the Bible can be found of, of lifelong Nazarites Samson, Samuel, and John the Baptist. And probably as well, Elijah, even though it doesn't explicitly say. Now remember the context of 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel comes right on the heels of the book of Judges. Almost certainly at the time that Hannah is alive, there's a judge reigning over Israel. And his name is Samson. Samson, a lifelong Nazarite through which God has promised to lead his people. And if you're familiar with the story of Samson in the book of Judges, take a look at Judges 14, 15, and 16, and you'll see that, that Samson isn't a very good judge. He doesn't do a very good job of leading the people of Israel back to the Lord. In fact, he fails miserably. So what is Hannah doing when she's pouring out her heart to God? She knows the spiritual state of her nation. She knows how desperate they are to return to God. And and so her prayer to God isn't just that God would come and deliver her from her personal affliction, even though that's true, but it's simultaneously a prayer recognizing that the nation of Israel is, is spiritually bankrupt right now. And that God needs to to intervene. He needs to to deliver his people from their self-inflicted suffering because of their commitment to sin. And the way that he's going to do that is by sending someone who is going to lead the people of Israel back to the Lord. See, Hannah, she's not bargaining with God to get what she, she wants. She's offering herself up to To see God's purposes fully realized. She says, God, we need to return to you. We need someone to lead us back to you. Let me be the catalyst through which you will bring your people back to yourself. What an incredible faith here. That even more than her desire for a child is a desire for God's will, a desire for God's purposes to be accomplished among his people. That even more than a desire to see her personal affliction end is is a desire for God to end the suffering of his people as they're enslaved to sin. And she says, God, would you do that? And here I am. If you give me a son, I will offer him up as the one who will be fully devoted to you, that you might use him to lead your people back to you. You see the heart of, of Hannah's prayer here? It's this incredible expression of faith. It shows us how to, how to turn to God in affliction. It shows us how to trust God no matter our circumstances. It reminds us of the relationship that we, we have with God, but more than that, it's, it's a prayer that's, that's concerned with the glory of God. Is it possible that your prayers, no matter what they may be, could have that same concern at their core? That's the second message, lesson for us to take this morning from Hannah's story, that no matter your prayer, seek the glory of God. No matter what you are praying for, seek God's glory. In a sea of darkness and and wickedness that is Israel at this time, Hannah is this island of faithfulness and faith. See, one of the dangers as we look at a story like Hannah's here is to interpret Hannah's prayer as this formula, to be copied rather than as an example to be emulated. And what I mean by that is that we can see Hannah's prayer is going to be answered at the end of this passage, and so we conclude that if I want my prayer to be answered, then I need to follow the exact same steps that Hannah followed in order to get what Hannah got. And yet that misses the point of this passage. Hannah's prayer is not a list of instructions to get God to answer our prayers the way that we want. They're, instead of a, they're just a description of how we might come to a God who is loving in the midst of our suffering and pain and heartache and affliction while still trusting that He is good and faithful and actually cares about us and is in all things working for His glory and for our good. So, no matter your prayer, seek the glory of God, even as Hannah does, asking that God would deliver her, not just from her personal affliction, but from the bondage of sin that has enslaved God's people. This is Hannah's prayer, and as we soon see, she continues to offer this prayer up over and over in the tabernacle, and she's being observed by Eli, who is the high priest. Let's go ahead and look at the third act of Hannah's story, the Lord's remembrance, starting in verse 12. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart, only her lips moved and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman and Eli said to her, How long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. What a contrast here between the faithfulness of this woman, Hannah, and the spiritual bankruptcy of the leader of Israel, Eli, at this time. And that day, it was, uh, it was completely unheard of to, to pray silently, and so Eli just assumes the worst about her and assumes that she has been drunk and, and actually rebukes her because she is praying silently. Uh, ironically, Eli, uh, he rebukes Hannah, and yet he refuses to rebuke his own sons, which we'll look at in... A couple weeks as we get to Hophni and Phinehas. Notice what comes next. But Hannah answered, No, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Hannah pours out her heart, her her plight to the high priest and and asks that he would revise his opinion of her. She's not a worthless woman and says she's just crying out to God. Verse 17, then Eli answered, go in peace and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. Don't pass over these words here. They're not just the well wishes of an onlooker. Eli is is the high priest. He's the only person on the face of the planet who is able to enter into the presence of God, the Holy of Holies, the place where God dwells. He represents the people before God, and now he also speaks on behalf of God. So his words aren't just this throwaway, well, I hope God answers your prayer. There's so much more. Eli is saying, may God grant you your prayer because it seems good and right and within, within the purposes and plans of God. He can't control God. But as the high priest, in offering this blessing, he's, he's placing his seal of approval on this prayer that is being offered up to God. The high priest places his seal of approval on the prayer of the woman. Thank God we have a great, faithful high priest who gives us access to the throne of grace whenever we need it. Hannah hears the words of the high priest in verse 18. It says, And she said, let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. This this is good enough for Hannah. She's done all that she can, and she is content to trust the Lord of hosts with the outcome. She's asked the one who has closed her womb to open it, not for the sake of just herself, but for the sake of his glory and for the sake of his people, no matter what may come, now she is content. And she's content because she's entrusting her future to a loving God. Verse 19 They rose early in the morning and worshiped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew his wife Hannah, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel, for she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. At some point in the future, Hannah's prayer is answered. God remembers Hannah. Remember this word remember is is a covenant word. It's a declaration that God has made promises to his people and he's, he's going to act on behalf of those promises. He's faithful to keep those promises. He shows Hannah as a part of his compassion, as a part of his plans and purposes for the way that he is going to bring his people back to himself. In response, Hannah names her son Samuel. And this name Samuel means something like his name is God. And so every single place where Samuel goes it's a testament to the one who answered Hannah's prayer. The one who works on behalf of his people. Indeed, that's the third truth for us to take home from Hannah's story here in First Samuel. The story of Hannah is not a formula for us to get what we want from God in prayer. It's not a guarantee. That if we pray with the right motives, God is going to answer our prayers. Remember, we're not held captive to the whims of fate or chance, but we're held in the hands of a personal, loving God. And sometimes he sees best not to answer our prayers the way that we would desire. And yet in the midst of that, we can be sure of this. We can be confident that God remembers his people. This is always true. This is never not true. You can rest in this confidence that God remembers His people, that God remembers His promises, God remembers His covenant with His people, people, and, and when we are confident of that truth, we can, like Hannah, we can, we can trust the Lord of hosts with the outcome. We might not understand what that outcome is or why God's providence is at times painful for us, but we can trust that God has not forgotten us or our needs or our deepest desires or our deepest pains. And if there's one truth that we just grasp hold of from this passage as we go out as as the church that is scattered and each of us is facing affliction and hardship and pain, it's going to vary widely for each and every one of us because all of us come from different places. I just hope this message is abundantly clear. God hears the heartfelt prayers of his people and he's faithful to fulfill his promises. God is faithful to fulfill his promises to you. That's the message of 1 Samuel, chapter 1, verses 1 through 20. It's not about Hannah primarily. It's about a good God. A God who hears. A God who sees. And a God who will not forget the promises that he has made to his people. Hannah's prayer is it's deeply personal, but it's also simultaneously concerned with the state of the people of God. Israel is spiritually bankrupt at this time, and they need God to intervene. They need, at the end of Judges, as it makes clear, they need a king. And as a part of God's plan, God uses the miraculous birth of Hannah's son, Samuel, to prepare the way for Israel's long-awaited and long-needed king. To prepare the way for David. David is the king that the people of Israel need, a king who is going to lead the people of Israel in following the king, the true king, the Lord of hosts. And then a thousand years later, we see that God, as a part of his plan, uses another miraculous birth to another woman who struggled having a child, Elizabeth. And God used her son, also a lifelong Nazarite, to prepare the way for the long-awaited king, not just of Israel, but the king of the cosmos, to prepare the way for Jesus The king who brings us back to God God hears the prayers of his people and the promises that God has made to us culminate in the person of Jesus we might not see everything that we want from God when we pray to him and yet we've seen enough in the person of Jesus that God, in His perfect providence, has given us exactly what we need a true King, a King who will bring us back to Him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its riches and its depth. And we thank you that it turns our hearts and our affections towards you. Lord Jesus, we ask that as we run to you in prayer, God, we would seek your glory. We thank you for the person of Jesus who gives us unfettered access to the throne of grace. Help us with confidence approach you because you are a good and faithful and loving God who is sovereign over all, and who loves us deeply. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.